This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Good evening, everybody. My name is Harry Helling. I'm the executive director here at the Birch Aquarium at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, UC San Diego. I'd like to welcome you all to the Jeffrey B. Graham Perspectives on Ocean Science Speaker Series. This evening, we are delighted to welcome Dr. Neil Driscoll. Neil is a professor of geology and geophysics here at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, UC San Diego. Neil obtained his PhD from Columbia University's Lamont Doherty's Earth Observatory and over the last 35 years has worked in the most prestigious oceanographic institutions in the country, including Lamont Doherty, Woods Hole Oceanographic, and of course here at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Professor Driscoll's primary interest is in tectonic deformation, specifically fault segmentation and interaction, with a focus on fault activity and earthquake reoccurrence intervals. He's published over 120 peer-reviewed articles in high-impact journals. So you might ask, how did Neil launch into fire cameras from geology and geophysics? Well, Driscoll was evacuated in the 2003 Cedar Fire, and nearly four years later to the day later, his family was evacuated a second time in, 2007, in the 2007 Witch Fire. Driscoll connected with researchers at UC San Diego who had been developing microwave networks for earthquake early warning since 2001. And with the additional fire cameras, these stations went from earthquake early warning systems to multi-hazard warning stations. The Alert California Fire Camera Network is now a resilient network of over 1,000 cameras and has well proven its worth. This evening, Neil will fill us in on the major advances in both the camera network and innovative new data acquisition and research projects that expand California's capacity to both mitigate and adapt to increasingly frequent and intense wildfires. Please join me in welcoming Neil for his talk entitled, Big Data, The Pathway Toward Wildfire Resilience. Thank you, Harry, for those kind words. Seems like I've been here many times, and I still love it. So thanks for coming. So tonight I'm going to tell you about three generations of wireless networks that have been developed here at the University of California, San Diego. The first was funded by NSF back in 2000. It was the backbone of wireless internet for the firefighters in the Cedar Fire, which at the time was the largest fire in the history of California. We then grew and became Alert Wildfire, and the collaborating three states, California, Nevada, and Oregon, populated these states with over a thousand cameras. Now, we've even grown bigger. We're Alert California. So here, what we're doing now is we're doing what Scripps and UC San Diego is renowned for. We're building a long time series of data, the quality of which is second to none, so we can study the processes that shape the Earth. Okay, so now we're collecting LIDAR, light detection and ranging. I'll go through this in detail. We're collecting multispectral imagery data. These data help define the fuels the carbon content, the moisture in the soils, the moisture in the fuels, so we can examine these prior to wildfire. We can identify hotspots and risks. Then we have over a thousand sensors and we're testing new sensors 
that allow us to provide actionable real-time data to first responders to marshal resources and evacuate people from danger zones. And finally, we can use this LIDAR data and the imagery data to look at how burn scours erode, how that sediment dispersal gets into our riparian environments, our river environments, that gets into our reservoirs. So even though you might not be directly impacted by wildfires, water quality, air quality is the long arm of these fires. So we've expanded that we're trying to do research that will allow us to have data-driven decisions. And as we say here, Alert California provides the state-of-the-art sensors, okay, that this technology to support data-driven decisions before, during, and after wildfires. I'd like to mention my co-PIs, okay? Falco Kuster, Frank Vernon. We have a, a group of talented young scientists and engineers, over like 27 of them, a few of them sitting right here. They work tirelessly looking at this, these data, okay? It, it's, it's a team. So all of these people, this picture was taken yesterday of the Sierra with snow. It makes my heart just throb to see rain and snow, okay? No fire, all right? So here, this is uh, over on the Inyo White Mountains, looking across to the Sierra, across Owens Valley. And just look at all these young people that are involved in this project. It's a team, and the team is engaged, innovative, and accountable. We've also built a village. We have over 100 collaborators, wireless internet service providers, firefighters, Everybody is pulling their weight. We couldn't do this project without our collaborators. One of the most important collaborators is CAL FIRE. Okay, so CAL FIRE is innovative, cutting edge, using data to drive decisions and do best practices. So I don't need to tell you that all you have to do is look at the weather, look at our, our reservoirs. We get all the rain in one event. So. It, it, we, we hear extremes all the time, okay? We go from having more rainfall in one event than we've had in a year. Prolonged drought, okay? The fuels are really dry. This picture shows fire on the coast. We never had this before. This was fire on the coast in the marine layer. That we're in new areas. So we all know it's prolonged drought. Okay, it's getting stronger and longer. The fuels are drying out. The water content in the soil is down. We're now having fires that are not just wind-driven, they're fuel-driven. And if you look at just the acres burnt, I was talking to you about the Cedar Fire in 03. That was the largest fire at the time in California's history. And it's been consistently eclipsed year after year. You look at here, the Dixie Fire, the August Complex, we're talking about million of acres burning, okay? We're impacting the biohabitats. We're impacting um, how these fires just burst through the backwoods and, and burn hotter, and tree mortality is higher. So here, we're really interested in characterizing the pre-fire phase and fire-inducing conditions 
This is going to aid forest management. We've seen from the mosquito fire this year that areas that were managed, the trees in those areas that burnt had a greater percentage of making it through the fire. Okay, we're seeing data now, all right, that, that we can actually use to try to prepare ourselves for some of these extreme events. Okay, the sensors, they provide actionable real-time data like I'm going to mention to you in the Kincaid fire where 180,000 people were evacuated without loss of life. Okay, so here, finally, the post-fire, okay, how this impacts our air water quality. And most people don't talk about soil, but if you think of the radius of the earth and you think of the thin layer of soil that has organics in it that can produce, it, it makes the layer of an onion look thick. Okay, soil, plants, amazing things. Okay, so here's the, these are the three prongs we want to really understand, and this is where Alert California has gone. I've said all this, but here, what I'm going to show you now is some maps. And they're maps of Tier 2, Tier 3 fire threat region, as identified by the California Public Utilities Commission. We're out mapping those. So here, the map on the left shows you the Tier 2, Tier 3 fire threat regions as identified by the CPUC. So here, Tier 3 is red. Tier two is yellow, and tier one is just no color. So we developed a, a phase plan to map these tier two, tier three fire threat regions with LIDAR and multispectral data. We have mapped the entire Sierra. No one has mapped that large an area at one base level time ever. We want to have the snapshot so that we can look at how fire scours affect the landscape, affect sediment. We want to be able to go in with our army of drones and understand change, understand the processes at the scale they shape the earth. So we've done the salmon color, that's all done. We've done 41% of the yellow color in the Northern California. And starting next spring, we'll do the coastal range, the transverse range, the peninsula range, so that we have data to make best decisions and best practices. So here, this just shows you, we have collected over 30,000 square miles of data. I'm impressive. And it, it's the team, the team that fly the planes all the way to the team that secures funds and makes sure our proposals are submitted. It's the team. So here, what is Landsat or uh, LIDAR? So LIDAR here, we collected on these aircraft. We have a technician that's wedged in there with all the computers and equipment. And the Leica is shown over here. And basically, we get eight hits per square meter. That's the level that we have to get to get to a certain uh, acceptance level by the USGS. Our survey averaged 14 hits per square meter. Okay, and here, the spacing of the pulse is about 35 centimeters. The elevation, we have to fly at a constant elevation so we don't introduce alias. And the survey speed's about 110 knots. And this young man told me um, at the end of the summer with some of the updrafts and downdrafts in the Sierra that he said it's worse than ever being on a ship. Okay. So let's just look at this. So here in the LIDAR, you can see the colors over on the right. 
We have a default color that is an artificial ground. We have the red that's the true ground. We have low vegetation is yellow, high vegetation is a magenta or purplish color, and then the buildings. So we can go in and we can image quantitatively the morphology of the earth, of the tree types, okay? Uh, how they change with age, allometry. So we're able to do this and we use a fixed wing aircraft because we can cover large areas, okay? We also have monuments, okay? So that we know exactly where the data are being collected, okay? So these monuments are surveyed in by the LIDAR and also have independent, like this GPS Trimble, also provide independent evidence and, and tie points. So let's look at what the LIDAR delivers. So here, this is a Google Earth map, okay? Pacheco Pass. So here, we get the highest hits. So the first return from the LIDAR, you can see it looks like vegetation. I can then take that and remove it and make a bare earth model. So this bare earth model now shows me the morphology, which is really important because fires and morphology helps us predict fire behavior and where the fire is gonna go, okay? And then we have intensity, and I'll show you this more. So the intensity of the LIDAR gives us insights into the vegetation type, the diversity of vegetation. So we can use all of these together to do the following. So the top one, we can, explore these complex relationships between the LIDAR metrics and the allometry of species. And allometry of tree species is just a fancy way to say, does the trees change their morphology as they age? How does the tree morphology change through time? And we can use this with the ground plot measurements and regression models to estimate forest production, parameters of large scale or global significance. We can quantitatively estimate the, the carbon, the biomass in the canopy and on the forest floor, okay? So wildfire modeling, as I said to you, is this is the LIDAR is instrumental in mapping slope and aspect, as well as road accessibility that we can provide first responders so they can see if they can get in or get out, which was one of the big concerns at the Paradise Fire. Finally, we can look at change detection and landslide analysis, like the Montecito slide. So here in this bottom panel, red is where sediment is vacated. Blue is where it's deposited. And if you see here, this is a channel. And this channel on this side is full of sediment. But over here on this side, up here, the channel is not full of sediment. So the sediment's getting into the channels. It's getting into the riparian environments. This burned carbon mass, carcinogens, are getting into our water affecting our soils. We can also do forest metrics. You don't have to be a forester to know, wow, there's different types of trees there. There's diversity, right? Even a geophysicist can pick this up, okay? <laughs> so we can look at some of these metrics and plot tree versus uh, base approaches, segments, and, and look at ancillary data. So they give us snapshots of what the forest looks like and how it's changing. And here we can take this to a whole new level. This is here, work from Santa Cruz, a five meter model. We're going to have a one meter model of our fuels, okay? And basically we can go in and we can look at the canopy base height, the bulk density, surface fuel. So Anderson has 
13 fire behavior uh, fuel models, and Scott and Bergen have 40. So we've come a long way. We have a long way to go, but we're starting to understand how the different fuels uh, help the fire spread more rapidly, like grasses and chaparral versus some of the older growth. Okay, So we're starting to learn some of these behaviors and then fuel models. And if we go in and look at these, you know, key inputs to these fire simulating models are developed by experts that are familiar with these type of data. Okay. And um, a lot of it has to have field data to back it up. So we work with Cal Fire. We work with the utilities that have built models of vegetation that we can then ground truth the satellite data from. So here, this is just a, a, a blow up. And here we're in San Mateo, and the difference between the dark color here and the green, the greens are conifers, the dark color here is urban areas, okay? So here we're right at the urban wildland interface, and this is where some of the most devastating fires occur for loss of life. We need to understand these boundaries better and how to uh, position our assets prior to wildfire season. So here, this is just showing, this is uh, an image from millions of data points. This is from our colleagues at NV5, Quantum Spatial, who collaborate with us. They help collect the data, they provide a lot of the algorithms we're going to be employing to look at the forest. But here, in the upper part of this figure, you can see that we have this species group of fur, the height, the crown diameter, the diameter of breast height and the conditions. This is a healthy tree. We can look over here at water depth of the streams. Okay, so the first return is the top of the, the river. The lower return is the base of the river. The red is where it goes on shore um, on both ends. And this, this sensor also had temperature, so we could look at the temperature of the water, which is really important for uh, the biology. Okay. We're not going to be doing the temperature of the water. We're going to be more imaging the land. And so if you look at this, this here, we're in Yosemite, El Capitan, and you can start to see some of the dead trees okay, that are sitting throughout this area here. The drought, pine bark beetle, okay, temperatures, excessive temperatures, recurring heat waves, trees are dying, strands of trees are dying, and this provides a really high heat capacity to fires that burn through here. So we want to map them. Here's a picture of data that was just collected. We can look at the tree shape. We can look at the height and how the density of the trees change through different areas. We can also look as a geologist um, how these, uh, what we call flakes, are on El Capitan. And as a geologist, this would be nothing I would ever do. <laughs> so here, this here is called the... Uh, Boot flake, got it? Looks like a boot, right? And here's this guy on the boot flake. Um, no, thank you. Okay, as a geologist, that boot flake could kick you nowhere. Okay. So we can go in and we can look at the density of plants. We can get down to the branch level. So we're now quantifying the fuels, where the fuels are most dangerous, where they could lead to excessive fires. So this here is a great image. Anybody know where this tree is? Sequoia, right? This is a General Sherman tree shown over on the right. 
and there he is with the other trees. This is the largest known living single stem tree on earth. Okay, General Sherman, estimated to be about 22 to 2700 years old. Okay, so we can go in and do this. So now on the right, I'm looking at cross section. I can look at how the trees compete and, and how they grow in the forest. And then I can look over here and map view. So the one on the right, you're looking at cross section, like you're standing in the forest. The one on the left is like you're flying over in an aircraft. And you can look and see, we've highlighted General Sherman here in the purple, and the branches and trees, look at them. You can see them on the forest floor. We can start quantifying the canopy as well as the fuels on the forest floor. We can use these data for other things, like here. Um, this is the Oroville Dam. Okay, so we just collected this. You can see the spillway over here to the left, okay, and the main dam here. And you can see that we're not in a really good water year like we were in 2017. Remember this? Yeah. So this was frightening. Um, this dam almost burst. Okay, so we do have wet years still, but we have to, we have to think more about water. And California has, a, a, right now, a water problem and it's gonna get worse. So we, we need to think about that and how we're gonna go forward. But these data also show us about where the landslides happen. So here, the modern sediment, sediment that's about 10,000 years and younger is shown in the yellow color. The sediment and rock type that's shown in this bluish color, that's the Franciscan formation, really old. And these Magenta are ophiolites, pieces of seafloor that have been scraped off the bottom of the seafloor as we compress and form the plate. But we can see where the landslides happen. We can see the areas that are most susceptible and something that's really interesting. Some people say, well, the, the atmospheric river that caused the Montecito debris flows wasn't the biggest atmospheric river. We all agree, but what it had was something that other atmospheric rivers don't, or some of them might, but not many. It rained a half an inch in five minutes. Okay, now you're living on a steep slope or a slope that's been burnt, okay? So some of the work that's emerging is saying that the rate of rainfall plays a huge role in whether there's a likelihood for debris flows, and we'll look at this more. This is a fault separating the Great Valley sequence shown in green versus uh, the Franciscan over here shown in that bluish color. And you can see uplifted ophiolites right here in the, um, in the, in the fault plane right here, okay? So we study multi-hazards, earthquakes, atmospheric rivers, sea level inundation, fire, okay? So, Alert California is a multi-hazard platform. Okay. So here, this is just to show you some of the resolution of the LIDAR. This was data that we collected as part of the high-speed rail where we characterized the seismic setting. And you can see that you can see the towers and power lines pretty clearly. Well, if we look at older data, okay, so this was like from 1905 or uh, 2005 from USGS, we had, we had a ways to go, okay? This is in 14, we're starting to get better. 
But here, my team went out with a airborne uh, drone and mapped this area. Look at the difference. So you're probably asking yourself, why is it so different? Well, a drone can hover and it can collect as many points per square meter as you'd like. You could have it hover for the whole 20 minutes that the battery will keep the drone in the air and then land it and then do it again. So here, we're gonna document change with our drone lab. We have drones that have payloads of LIDAR, of multispectral data, okay, um, magnetic data. So we have the capability to go back and document change. So why did I get into this business? This was 03 from my front porch, okay? Pyrocumulus cloud. Embers were going up 15, 20,000 feet and falling on our front patio. And we had just moved here from Cape Cod. And uh, I said to my wife, I said, wow, those are holly branches. And she looked at me and she went, they're live oak, honey. So I, I was like, but we, we couldn't see. We had respiratory distress for like four to six months in my family. But the thing I wish I had done, my wife's going to laugh at this. Our kids were really anxious. You couldn't see. No one was telling you where to go. There was no intel. There was no independent way of verifying if you were safe or not. So we told our kids to pack up important stuff and put it in the car. So we went out to the car and it was stuffed with their stuffed animals. <laughs> I, am, am I kidding? No. I just wish I had had a picture, but it was one of those moments that takes some of the anxiety away, okay? So here, this next slide is just what happened this year, um, the Oak uh, Fire in Mariposa. These pyrocumulus clouds get embers high up into the air. They have strong winds. The car fire was an EF3 tornado, okay, back a few years ago. So these, the fuel-driven fires start creating their own weather and wind patterns. Okay, so here, what have we done during wildfires? We've worked with our, our partners, we've built a network, we have over a thousand cameras in California. Microwave communications, so we're resilient, okay? And finally, um, we confirm, we don't detect, we confirm ignition and we try to catch fire in the incipient phase so that we're able to combat it and put it out, fight fire. So here's where the cameras are. Do you like our new logo? I think the new logo is pretty cool. Um, and so here, the camera, the way they're oriented right now is the way the triangles are set up. And CAL FIRE, as the state firefighters have the priority to move all the cameras, as does CAL OES. We have a really talented team of engineers that put these cameras up hundreds of feet in the air on mountaintops, on towers, and, and it's a risky job. And the safety is quality number one, and we all work together. We've built everything. So from the electronics, batteries, solar panels, what we need for power, cameras here. So we just put this up in MODOK, okay? So this is sitting here. I didn't drill into the ground. I didn't impact the environment. These are uh, cement bags weight that hold it down. 
after extreme fire season, we can come back and take it away. So we've developed an arsenal of portable camera equipment so that we can put it out, we can get the perimeter of the fire, we can get better understanding of the threats. And this here is on Mandeville Canyon over by the Getty, which is another corridor that burns all the time. We want to have cameras out there seasonally, which makes permitting a lot easier, and they go away. So here we are just setting up one of these stations, okay? And we try to do minimal impact to the environment. So here, this is a tough story to tell, but the Tubbs Nuns Pocket Fire 2017 was smaller than the Kincaid Fire in 2019. And 22 people lost their lives in those fires because they had no intel. We couldn't tell, first responders couldn't tell people where to go. Okay, it was blowing sustained winds of 50 to 70 miles an hour. The Kincaid fire in 2019, as you can see, was larger, okay, windy. But because we had the cameras installed by then and Supervisor Rabbit had developed an incredible uh, communication system in Sonoma to warn people, we evacuated 180,000 people without loss of life. Atmospheric rivers, these are the cascading disasters. So right after the Thomas fire, which was the largest fire at that time, okay, an atmospheric river pointed right at Montecito. And it wasn't the largest atmospheric river, it just had periods of intense downpour. This is the debris flow that entombed 23 people that night, January 8th, 2018. And unfortunately, They'd been through months of the Thomas fire. So these people, um, terrible. And these debris flows move pretty fast. You can't outrun them, okay? Um, just, just a disaster, okay? We see at Big Spur the same thing last year that fires in Big Spur uh, made sediment more susceptible to erosion and we closed down Route 1 again, okay? Um, and it, it's bigger when you look at it up close. It's a pretty big failure, okay? I wanna show you some work from the USGS that we're gonna be studying also, is looking at these large failures. So this is on Highway 1, and watch this. Okay? Not good, <laughs> okay? So this was March 2017, this was May. Um, I was just up there last year, and as a geologist, my wife had to tell me, keep your eyes on the road. I'm there. But can you see that landslide? <laughs> so here's what it looks like in June 2017. Look at that, okay? So our sensors and repeat drone will be able to study these debris flows better and understand their linkages with rainfall events, with wildfire scours, okay? Another problem that's a cascading disaster is air quality. This is after the Ferguson fire. You can just barely see El Capitan in the background here. Okay, see it right there in the little notch? Well, it's supposed to look like this, okay? My son took this picture. But you can see the sun rising right in that notch. This is what we want Yosemite to look like, okay? Like this, all right? Not like this. 
Okay, so air quality, particulate matter 2.5, where we're doing some really interesting research with hyperspectral data and looking at how it interacts with these particle sizes and extinctions to try to get quantitative estimates of the PM 2.5. This is my picture, Sacramento Airport. I've never seen anything like this. The air quality was such that it refracted the sunshine and you could see the corona. Okay, so this is right, you know those weird doors at Sacramento Airport that say keep going like as if you're gonna stop there? You know, and so keep moving and right that glass wall I stopped and shot a picture. And when I was leaving, there was like 50 people taking a picture of this. 2020, likely offset decades of air quality in the, in the cap and trade program. 29 of the top 30 counties nationwide were in California. Okay, this is, we can't have this happen. It's impacting our air quality. It's impacting our water quality. Okay, this is the Camp Creek in El Dorado before the Caldor fire and after. Okay, all that burnt, charred carbon carcinogens is getting in our riparian environments, impacting our soils and going to our reservoirs. So here, what have we done with all these cameras and sensors We've developed a new command and control platform where first responders and firefighters could move the cameras. So if the camera, the proboscis on the camera there is shown in red, that shows the camera was just moved. So this here is sitting, looking across Owens Valley to the Sierra. I took this picture yesterday. About two weeks ago, I took this picture that's just south in Marzano Peak. That's uh, deep springs there and not a lick of snow. So um, Mammoth got 70 inches, okay? Don't call me after December 11th. <laughs> so here, things change rapidly. I, they say we got two inches in the North County, like out in, you know, Valley Center, Ramona. Um, it was quite a rain event. So, and so here, just showing you, this shows who's moved the camera last. So if you look over here on the far right, we have... Uh, a way that first responders can say, don't move that camera. I just put it on a lightning strike or I put it on smoke and I want to see what happens so they can communicate and develop camera etiquette. This was one of our biggest problems with the old platform. Okay, this here is Ball Mountain and Sequoia. It's 20 plus miles from the nearest station we have. It's in true wilderness. And you're probably saying, well, how did you get the data back from that? Well, this is with snow. So here, just so you can see the difference between the two, Bald Mountain without snow, with snow. But here, look at that rainbow. We're using Elon Musk's Starlink, all right? So we've learned how to program that into our computers and backhaul the data from these remote areas through the satellite network. So on this command and control platform, we have over 2,300 users of this that are first responders. We've had 25 per day since the migration from the old platform. Phone calls, emails, we have training videos, average 12 people per training. We're onboarding all these people to use the, these technologies, okay? And here's what they can do. They can go on so it shows what angle they're looking at. This is up at Grapevine. They can go through and look panel by panel when somebody says, we think we've seen uh, ignition 
and we can go through and we can scan down. We can blow it up and look at two. Okay, there's one of our uh, Comcast towers. And then we can blow it to one and we can look. Um, I don't know if you remember the train fire that caught fire going through the pass there um, just a few weeks ago that we caught it pretty early on. So um, this platform allows us to confirm ignition, provide actionable real-time data, and use the sensors. And we've also got eyes on the wildfires. So back in November 5th, 2020, we were one of the top 10 research stories at the University of California, San Diego. And we've kept growing. This is in South Ops, okay? And so here in South Ops, this is Cal Fire uh, ECC, and we built a data wall so they can look at all the data we're pumping into them right at one time. And they can feed this to the incident commander in the field. So here, this is at uh, South Ops. This wall here is uh, just showing how we can pull the data onto a uh, tablet, and we can pump this out to anybody that's on the internet that we provide. This here is at Intel up in Sacramento. Um, this is a bigger, this is a five by three wall, but you can see that you can go through and it's just plug and play. Um, it takes one day to get someone trained that they can use this technology and all the screens are linked and you can pull and uh, move data all around. So finally, I'd like to leave you with some of the exciting things we're doing tomorrow. So here, um, looking here between the 15 and five corridor, these uh, balloon shaped things are towers that we have cameras on. And we wanna go in and put new sensors on some of these areas that burn often. So this here is a forward looking FLIR camera, okay? So you can see the fire through the smoke. So here, as a firefighter, and we have a number of firefighters on our uh, team that provide valuable resources. This is the Dixie fire. So here, this is our camera where we had the visible range on. So you could see what a firefighter would see. Over here on the right is a FLIR camera with 25 mile plus visibility and heavy smoke. You can see where things are uh, spotting and how your firefighters could get trapped behind the front line. These FLIR cameras will be a great complement to our existing set of cameras. We also are working with Cal Fire. We just put a FLIR on their uh, air tanker, um, shown here, the aviation program. We also put an overwatch imaging system, and this is the multispectral. And overwatch calibrates their signal so we can actually determine or extract temperature data, which is starting to appear to be really important for these explosive wildfires is the, the temperature. And you can see here that this allows us to map the perimeter of the fire. So if you were in this area fighting the fire, and these areas were wrapping around you, you'd be trapped. We're able with uh, routers on the plane to push the data down to the uh, incident commander in the field. So now we have eyes on the fire through smoke, multispectral, quantitative estimates of heat and perimeter. It's gonna make our firefighters safer while they keep us safe. This here is the aircraft that these are all being put on. Um, here, they're King Air. Um, we've done one plane, we're doing another plane this spring. So these assets, these air assets are really important, okay?
drones. So Falco Cooster's drone lab is second to none. And the team is doing incredible work of testing these drones, realizing their limits, and using them for documenting change. You use the fixed wing to fly the base map, the time slice. You use the drones to go back where you have change, like they're up there tomorrow at uh, Forest Falls, right in the San Bernardino Mountains that had big rainfall and debris flows. I don't know if you saw it on the news, but we've got all the permits in place. We have uh, retired firefighters that work with us to make sure we can get in there safely. And we use these drones to document change. Okay, and here's one of our technicians flying the drone. So the drone is off the ground and this is a magnetometer and magnetometers are sensitive to steel. So they have to fly it on these cables um, far enough away from the drone that it doesn't have aliasing or impact from the, uh, from the, the drone itself. And so it's very tricky to fly. So we want to know what happens after the fires. This is in Montecito. Look at what's going down the creeks in San Isidro and, and the damage and the boulders, okay? Um, we, we need to start identifying these corridors and knowing that when we have these atmospheric rivers that could potentially have huge downpours, okay? Um, half, a, half an inch in five minutes, um, these are susceptible to failures. So here, we like to think of this as our quiet sentinel out there just watching, okay? Trying to confirm ignition. This is in MODOK. And um, I just want to come and say that our main goal and the evolution of this program through the three generations has been first, innovation and development of wireless internet for research applications. Then came the second generation where we built out the camera network to over a thousand cameras in the collaborating states of Nevada, Oregon, and California. And now we're in the data collecting phase. We're collecting state-of-the-art data. We're, we have a seeker program. We're storing the data. We're storing all the camera data. People can go back and say, can I get th this camera from this time slice to this time slice? So we're trying to use data as scripts, and UC San Diego has done for hundreds of years, is collecting state-of-the-art, high-quality data at the scale the processes shape the Earth. So here, we, we want to know about how these wildfires impact the landscapes and biohabitats, okay, as well as the air, soil. Remember, the soil quality is really important and water quality. And with that, I'd like to leave you with Half Dome. Thank you. You talked about having the uh, portable stations that you take away at the end of fire season. Yeah. When the hell is that? It isn't. That's why I'm bringing one up to your house next week. <laughs> I'm not kidding, okay? That would be great. Um, no, here's, here's the way I look at it. There's fire season, there's moderate fire season, and there's extreme fire season. And I'm hoping, Paul, with this rainfall and cooler temperatures and not huge Santa Anas on the, on the forecasts, I, I'm a weather nut. 
I look at the weather every day and look at the cameras and I just, it's so amazing those two or three days that it, it, the sky is orange and everything's dry and burning and, and, and it's an anxiety that I would want no one to face. And so um, fire season's a real threat. The recurrence interval is almost every year. We might get away with a less threatening season this year, but we don't know enough to know if that means next year is going to be worse or better. So we're in the infancy of data acquisition and these models, these fire models are, they need much more data and they need, I didn't go into artificial intelligence and machine learning, but they need to learn a lot more. And, and we're getting there, but um, your point's really a good one. There's, there's no end of fire season. And what we're going to be able to do, which I'm pretty excited, is anecdotally, I've been told by many people that one or two Santa Ana days dries out all the moisture from the previous year. And we're going to be able to test that and look at how moisture changes with Santa Ana, the first one, the second one, the third one, the moisture in the soils, which controls spotting, or the moisture in the fuels and the canopy. So um, we're, we're getting there. And what I'd like to leave you with tonight is that with big data, high quality data, data that extends a long enough time that you're capturing the signal and it's not aliased, okay, um, that we're going, to, uh, we're going to be in a better place for wildfire resilience. This is an enormous project. I'm wondering how much um, computing power uh, supports it and how is it organized? You have distributed computers or how, how do they talk so, to each other? So, how, how does it work? So um, we have a huge storage space up at the San Diego Supercomputer, also up at Cal IT Squared, where uh, Western Digital's best friend in fact, we're meeting with them, I think it's Thursday, right? That we're meeting with Western Digital for looking at more servers. So we're collecting huge amounts of data, petabytes of data per year, okay? Um, and we're storing it because the archive is invaluable. So we have all of our computer uh, housed up at Cal IT Squared and at the supercomputer, a lot of the networking. Down here at Scripps, we have a lot of the uh, fabrication of instruments and the electronics and the uh, programming uh, of the cameras. So um, it's split between the PIs. Uh, some is in, down in uh, GRD in my department, and some at Scripps is up in IGPP with Frank Vernon, and then our colleague uh, Falco Kuster over at Cal IT Squared. So very good question, and right now, we probably have about two years of runway of space to store data at the rate we're collecting, but everybody wants to collect more data and then we'll have two months of runway. So um, this is uh, definitely in my uh, field of view on my radar uh, as uh, a limiting factor. Really good question. You can see that that's what keeps me up at night. <laughs> 
hello. Uh, I'm Chester. I would like to ask a, a more technical question. Uh, okay. Could you tell me the difference between lidar and SAR? Because I'm more familiar with SAR, but I'm not familiar with lidar. So lidar is just emitting a beam mm -hmm. and uh, very narrow uh, frequency, and then bounce back. Mm -hmm. Where NSAR is trying to look at change, and so you're looking at how the frequencies mm -hmm. shift. So LIDAR is just giving you a morphologic expression, and we're actually pinging it so you get so many hits per square meter, and then you can pull that into ESRI or uh, other um, platforms and make it into a, a shape file or a surface file. Okay, so um, they're, they're different that way. LIDAR does not give you change, where NSAR will give you change when you fly it repeatedly. So does that mean SAR can track moving targets? Um, can it track moving targets? Yeah. <sighs> Tough. But it, it, if, if the target's moving slow enough, I believe it could. Okay. Okay? Thank you. You're welcome. So many managers are risk-averse, especially in public sector. Can you describe briefly how you've encouraged them or gotten them to use your data and science? Well, um, first, when you say, so there's many sponsors that are in my program and many uh, talented researchers that are on the team. So we provide a service that's the separate part of our house to the utilities. And we provide data to ourselves and others We've kept it in the university environment, so it's open source. Everyone can get access to these data, okay? Test the ideas, test their own ideas. Um, so here, how have I convinced people to use the data? I've convinced people to use the data because the data is of extreme quality, time series, and they can extract the frames that they want to look at in the past. And they can look at the data and model it for fuel modeling, uh, fire behavior, things like that. So I would say that when people intersect these data sets, they want to use them to understand the earth on a research, but also to understand fire threat in the incipient phase, confirming that. So infrastructure, biohabitats, loss of life is minimized. Does that, does that get at your question? Very much so. Thank you. You're welcome. We're out of time. I want to thank Neil again. Thank you, Neil, and thank you all for coming. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.